And we're back. It's the OMN Alumni Podcast. I'm Steven Sandberg. Hey, Orange Media Network has some new websites for all of the mediums in OMN, and they look great. The students are making new content all the time and posting to it daily, so go to orangemedianetwork.com and click around to check it out. We've got news, sports, entertainment, music. It's all on there. So again, that's Orange Media Network. Go click there and check out those new websites today. Hey, our guest on the podcast is the former editor-in-chief of Prism Art and Literary Journal, and he is now an editorial assistant for Penguin Random House. It's Daryl Oliver. How you doing, Daryl? It's going well. It's going well. Great to hear from you, Stephen. Yeah, you too. You too. Uh, You recently moved cross-country L.A. to New York. How did that move go? That um, move was shocking. We we drove actually, so we covered um, the entire span of the country in six days. Wow! Um, and we had our dog in the car, and she hated it. So, oh that my goodness, made it a bit more difficult than it needed to be. Yeah, have to have to make a lot more stops, you know, to let your dog get out, run around, stretch her legs. Yeah, let her let her get out and run around. Um, we've learned that she doesn't like car rides very much, so she panted the entire time nonstop. Oh. Um, but it was, you know, amazing. If you haven't driven across country before, I say you have to do it once. We stopped at the Grand Canyon. There's a Blue Ridge mountain range um, in the south. There were so many gorgeous things to see. Yeah, I bet. Uh, and you're in New York now, coming from L.A. Uh, I know it's kind of a cliche, but I have to ask, what, what's the biggest difference between New York and L.A. in your opinion so far? In my opinion, it's really um, the humidity. It is extremely humid out here, and I was not expecting that. No one ever warned me about that. Um, But from L.A., you know, I thought I was accustomed to heat, but there's something entirely different about 90-degree weather when you're constantly sweating as opposed to just being hot. Yeah, you've got that dry heat in California as opposed to Mm -hmm. being quite balmy uh, uh, and sweaty in New York. balmy and sweaty, and, you know, you go outside to just take out the trash and all of a sudden you need to take a shower. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Come, coming back from dropping off the trash and being covered in sweat. It's, just, it's like a double whammy right there. You know, you don't want that. Exactly. <laughs> now whenever, and I have never moved across the country, so I don't have any experience in this, but just when I've moved across the state, I know that I have to, I feel like I have to pare down some stuff. You know, I have to make some tough decisions about what I take mm-hmm. with me. Uh, did you have to make any tough decisions when you uh, about what you kept and, and what you left behind when you have to move cross-country? Um, yeah, definitely we did. But we got lucky to where we moved into a bigger apartment when we moved. So we needed to kind of fill our apartment when we came. The hardest decision, um, unsurprisingly, were books. We had too many books. Um, and we had to get rid of books, which is very, very difficult. So what I told myself is I'd go through all the books, i put all the books that I'd bring me some sort of happiness or reread value on the left side, everything I'm giving away on the right side. Um, and that first round, I put two books on the right side. So <laughs> I just I couldn't bear to part with them. It. I couldn't bear to part with them, but um, well, it, and books it worked are- out. Yeah, and books are pretty important for you, especially with your role at Penguin Random House. You have to read all the time. And so yeah. have books always been a big part of your life? Have you always been a big reader? Yeah, books have, you know, I, I've i always loved books. Um, growing up, my mom used to make, you know, when we were little, make us read for 30 minutes a day when we were really little. Like, that's how it started. 
Um, and then it got to a point where I was just reading more and more. She had to stop me from reading. A funny story I like to tell people is I got um, grounded at one point and I had to be a teenager, who knows, maybe 14 or 15. And, you know, when I initially got grounded for whatever it was, I was like, okay, whatever, I can't go outside or watch TV, I'll just read and that's fine. So I come home from school and she has caution taped my whole bookshelf. <laughs> so to make it clear, like, you are grounded from everything you enjoy. And that part really struck me. Yeah, reading is not a punishment. Reading, reading is something you love, so you have to take that away when you're being punished. Yes, had to take that away. So that was, um, that was interesting. And then um, another, you know, thing my fiance makes not makes fun of me, but says um, it's interesting because in, I recently finished graduate school a couple of years ago, and um, I read everything assigned for graduate school cover to cover. And she was she made fun of me and said, you know, you don't have to do that. You don't have to read everything cover to cover. And I was like, no, I need to be prepared. So now when you, you mentioned that when you were a kid, you read uh, 30 minutes a day. That was something that your mom instilled in you. Uh, what were some of your favorite books when you were a kid? Oh, wow. I mean, um, I, you know, like all kids of my age, I really was into Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. um, other than that, I, I like the Animorphs series. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Yes, I was um, a I was a big Animorphs fan. Really? Yeah. Oh, we had the I had the first twenty twenty five books in the series on my bookshelf. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love the Animorphs. They were I would reread those books all the time. Um, I liked Nancy Drew. Um, but the thing about Nancy Drew was, you know, as a kid, I, all the kids would say, you got to like the Hardy Boys, because that's the boy version of it. And I was like, ah, but I like Nancy Drew, so. I feel like Nancy Drew was the better detective between her exactly. and the Hardy Boys. Exactly. The like, Hardy Boys kind of like stumbled better. on the answer, but like Nancy Drew actually deduced it. And figured it out. So, um, yeah, those are some of my staples, like as a, as a really young kid. You're doing a lot of reading now, especially for, for Penguin Random House. Tell me a little bit about what you do as an editor. Yeah, so the job of an editor is, you know, everything you would think it is and some. So um, I, the main goal of an editor is to get books out in the world. So I, I do a lot of reading submissions of books that are not published and, you know, someone just wrote and has... Um, gotten themselves an aid, a literary agent, and they submitted to editors. And you know, we read a ton of submissions, and when we find something that we love, we try to pursue it and try to buy that submission and bring it on to Penguin Random House as one of our books. Um, once we successfully do that, then we work with the author to do those edits that an editor will make. But I'm not doing grammar um, edits, I'm, I'm not that person. The type of edits I do our structural narrative plot edits characterization to make it just a better book to make it the best reading book that it can be completely even through from page one to the last page um, and then after we've done that we send it along to our grammar specialists who are really really the saints of the publishing world because um, they you know get down to the nitty-gritty of how a sentence should read anything that's not reading right and we go through the grammar process with the grammar editor myself and the author um, quite a few times before sending it off to the publicity and marketing teams to 
get some buzz for the book out in the world to figure out the best way to um, kind of bring this book to the readers and to the rest of the world. And they do all sorts of things from trying to, you know, get author events going. Um, right now, those are, are virtual, and during COVID, they have been. Or even trying to get NPR to say something about the book, or getting other authors out there who wrote similar books or have similar audiences to read the book ahead of time and say something nice about it to get some buzz. Um, and then from there, you know, we're doing cover design. I don't make the covers, but we have a design team and we look at those and we try to figure it out properly with the author before um, next thing you know, it's on sale date and, you know, the books are on shelves and, and we try to make sure that the author is happy with that whole process. So right now I um, am at the editorial assistant level. So I work for two executive editors who are both my bosses are, are brilliant, wonderful people, um, and I work with them on their list, on the books that they buy and edit and make sure everything goes smoothly with them while trying to also build my own list slowly but surely. What's the feeling like when a book that you worked on, uh, edited, and, and really enjoyed finally hits the bookshelves and is, and is available for people to buy? What's that feeling like for you when you see it out there in the world? Well, um, I'm about to find that out soon. So, um, surprisingly enough, book publishing is a very, very long process. Mm -hmm. So, I, I'm working on books right now with my bosses that won't be coming out until 2023, some of them. Even one that we're working on 2024. Wow. You know, these dates that are just so far out. Um, so, none of the books that I've worked on yet have actually appeared on the shelf. Really? Um, and I think the first one that I've worked on that will appear on the shelves will be this November. I think two are coming out this November. Um, and I'm very excited for that feeling to see this book that I've been laboring, you know, <laughs> with my bosses for. My bosses do the main laboring because these two are their books. But um, I've been there every step of the way with the process. Uh, and you know, I, I can't wait to see it in shelves. I know I'm going to buy a copy from the store just because even though I don't have to. <laughs> do you know, in, in this process, when you are reading these books and these submissions, do you find that you know pretty quickly that it's a book that you think is strong and you want to move on? Or is it something where you've got to finish it before you can really make, make a good decision? Or is it um, both? It's a little bit of both because, you know, there are those ones that you know immediately aren't for you. The caveat I have to put here is, is by the time a book makes it to the stage where it's getting submitted to editors and editorial assistants, um, it's a good book because it, you need to have a literary agent to even get it to one of these big publishing houses. Um, and in order to get a literary agent, you have to write your book first and then you have to submit to them and they get thousands of submissions from everyone. And then they weed through those, pick someone, and then once you have an agent, you and that agent go through a whole round of edits on your book to make it even better before getting it out to the editors. So all the submissions we get are spectacular. Um, and that's a plus and a negative because there are many times where we pass on good books. You know, I've, I've read full books, full submissions that... um 
you know, halfway through, I knew this isn't right for us for whatever reason. Maybe we have another book that's coming out at a similar time that this would come out that would bump up against each other. Or maybe our imprint doesn't publish books of this exact genre or, or style, but it's so good that I finished reading it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's interesting. But, so yeah. Do you find you, you, you finish every book that, that comes across your desk? Um, I don't finish every single book that comes across my desk. Um, and that's because, you know, like I said, I, right now, I, at my level, I've only been pitched maybe, you know, my whole time, three books, um, which isn't very much. But my bosses get pitched, you know, ten books a week sometimes. Um, and so I read along with them. Uh, but if, you know, one of my bosses calls me or messages me and says, hey, I finished this, we're going to pass, and I haven't finished yet, then I don't continue reading. Or vice versa, if I um, read a whole book and I, you know, send my boss this very long, detailed message about it and he's read half of it, then we can make a decision from there. Um, and also, a fun fact, for nonfiction books, you don't write the full book before you have a book deal for nonfiction. That's only for fiction. Interesting. So how, how, how much typically of the book do you get for nonfiction in that, in that stage? You typically get um, about a two-page overview, and then with that two-page overview, um, about another page about the author, and then a marketing-like um, vision that the author and the agent have for it, and then a annotated chapter summary, so like a very detailed chapter summary of each chapter, which can run sometimes 10 pages, and then usually two to three sample chapters, and that all comes around to a total of about 50, 60 pages usually. Um, and that's how most nonfiction books are, are bought and sold. That's interesting. What makes then, since, since it's not a full book or, or anything like that, what makes a strong pitch for a nonfiction book? What sort of things do you all look for and decide, you know what, this, this is interesting, we want to, we want to continue with this? Uh, we look for expertise, really. Um, expertise in whatever the subject matter is. Uh, we look for passion, um, and we look for how much work they put into the proposal itself. You know, if you put a lot of work into the proposal, into those three sample chapters, then um, that's a, indicative of the amount of work that you're going to put into the book as a whole. Um, and then we also look for realism to make sure that um, the vision that the author has is a realistic vision for the book. Um, and the reason why, you know, for nonfiction that they don't have to have a finished book is because often for nonfiction, whatever book you're writing requires research. Um, and research isn't free and you need to often pay for that research. So that's why you kind of have to, especially if you're writing a history, a biography, um, an ethnography, anything, or if you need permissions to photos or archives, you know, you have to pay for that. So uh, that's why nonfiction writers often try to get that book deal first. Yeah, and that makes sense now that you mentioned that because you know a lot of those nonfiction books are gonna require dozens if not hundreds of hours of research or interviews or interviews, going and talking yeah. to people. Um, and so that, that makes sense. You know, it, It's unreasonable, I guess, to expect someone to put all of that in before having, having the deal in hand, I suppose. Exactly, and then even if they could put all that in, how did they pay for it? How did they have lodging? How did they have food? What if they had a family? So. Um, whereas it's, it's different. Some, not, some fiction requires 
um, research and whatnot, but a lot of fiction, you know, you kind of write on your own time. Do you have to set aside your personal taste in books at all when you're reading for your job? Because I imagine that there's probably genres that you enjoy reading more than others. Uh, but do you have to set that aside a bit and approach this job with, with kind of a different frame of mind when you're reading for work as opposed to like reading for fun? Yes, I, I do. Um, I do because, you know, the imprint that I work out work at mainly um, is Hogarth Books and Random House Books. Um, the type of books they publish, I have to have an eye for those books and to be looking to buy and edit those books, even especially when I'm um, working on my boss's list, which I mainly do at this point, is I have to also read with an eye of, is this something they'll be interested in? Uh, because, you know, like I said, publishing is a long process. So as an editor, when you buy a book, you want to make sure that you love the book because you're going to be rereading it five times before it ever makes the shelves. And you can't do that with a book you don't like. So it's quite subjective on that. So I, I have to read um, with an eye for what they're looking for as well. Um, I know growing up, I, I really loved science fiction and fantasy, and we don't publish science fiction and fantasy um, at these two imprints. So those aren't the type of books that I'm um, looking to buy or work with. Um, but vice versa, when I'm reading for fun, you know, now I want to read more books that are similar to books that we publish so you can keep your um, eye on the pulse, so to speak, to know what the market is doing. And do you find that your interests are, are changing or expanding because of the work you've been doing? Yeah, I definitely think they're expanding. Um, I definitely think my interests are expanding. I think I always had the interest there. Um, you know, I read all sorts of things growing up, really, whatever I can get my hands on, and I have my favorites, but I do see my interests growing wider and broader um, the more I work with books. The more I just meet other authors or editors um, or people in the publishing world where they say, hey, you should really check this out, um, and I, you know, try to do so. So with your role, how much time do you estimate you read in a given week? Oh, that's, that's the golden question. Um, I would say in a given week, um, anywhere between 10 to 15 hours of work reading. Um, and those hours don't often come during the actual work day because other things are happening. So those will be, you know, maybe an hour or two at the end of the work day. Um, definitely on Sundays, I end up doing a big chunk of reading. Uh, so I'd say 10 to 15 hours in a given week of, of purely work dedicated reading. And do you have any time to read for pleasure anymore? Um, not as much. That is, <laughs> that is the, um, the gift and the curse of good and publishing. You are now paid to read, but your for fun reading takes a massive dip. I have my two, my two read pile suddenly just keeps growing and growing and growing. I said at the beginning of this conversation I had to get rid of some books, and I think I've already replaced them with books that I've just bought. Like, oh, I really want to read that. I really want to read that. It goes into my pile. I keep starting books and not um, necessarily finishing books, but 
what I want to start doing is dedicating the last hour of the evening or the last 30 minutes of the night to fun reading. I want to try to transition to that. Um, and I know a lot of my colleagues read for fun on their vacations. They uh, just consume all the books that they've been waiting to read. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. And I, I feel that sense of frustration you described a moment ago of starting books and then, you know, maybe not having time to finish them or having your to read pile start to start to pile up. Uh, yeah, that that totally that totally gets to me when, you know, I'm reading a book and then there's another book that I want to read. So I start that and then I put the other one down and there's a, a third book I want to read and then I don't finish the first two yet. So I, I totally sympathize with that. And then uh, your pile gets so big, it gets scary, and you don't even want to look at it anymore. Yeah, yeah, it's the double-edged sword, you know? It gets so big that it gets intimidating. You know, how do I get through all these books? You don't want it to be a chore. You want it to be fun. Fun, yeah. Uh, when you do have time, is there a book that you've read recently, um, you know, maybe a summer read or something that you really enjoyed? Yeah. Um, the last book that I read that I just absolutely devoured, I was a little late on the train here, but it was Homegoing by Yajiasi. Mm -hmm. um, and it was absolutely fascinating. It was recommended to me by my fiance. She had read it and um, absolutely loved it and put the book in my hands and said, you need to read this. And something I've learned is whenever she recommends a book to me, it's always spectacular. So uh, when she like put it in my hands, I knew I had to read it. And I remember I, I started reading it over the course of a week, you know, it was slow going. And then I hit that point where I couldn't put it down, and there was this like rainy Sunday. Uh, this was before I moved, so I was in Los Angeles, a rainy Sunday, and I was just so excited to read and finish this book. And I kid you not, everybody in my contacts on my phone decided to call me that day. <laughs> Everyone so had a question. Everyone had a question. I just wanted to say hi, and I was like, oh, I don't want to talk today. Yeah, my mind but is yeah, in this it, world right now in this book. I do not have time to talk right now. I do now. not have time to talk. But yeah, I really enjoyed it. Do you have a book you've recently read that you loved? Ooh, that's that's a great question. I, uh, let's see. Yeah, I read a book in June. Uh, it was a novel called God Spare the Girls by Kelsey McKinney, uh, who's oh. a writer for Defector Media. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. It's about two sisters in Texas uh, who are the daughters of an evangelical pastor and uh, he gets up to some things that uh, are not good, and the story kind of explores how they uh, <laughs> react to that, and and how they, you know, deal with this this crisis in their family and, and a crisis of faith. And I thought it was really interesting. I really liked it. Oh, nice! Sounds sounds interesting. So now we've both got books to add to our pile of reading list. I know, exactly. <laughs> I actually just um, wrote that title down. So excellent. Uh, when you and your partner share books, you know, what I found is that when I, uh, when I work with, uh, or when I read with my wife and I recommend a book to her, she recommends a book to me, we're constantly like, you know, as they're reading it, we're kind of constantly gauging like, oh, are they enjoying it? Are they at this part yet? You know, did they get to the part where this thing happens? Do you, do you and your fiance ever, ever feel that way when you recommend a book to one another? Definitely, I think she does. Um, I, I really think she does, and I do as well. It's the same, you know, when you recommend a TV show or something, you're kind of looking over, like, are they enjoying this as much as I enjoyed this? I hope so. <laughs> um, so, I, yeah, I, I think so. I think it's, it's tough for me because um, I have some really, like, deep niche interests. Like, I, I love, love, love history books, um, and I will read 
you know, a history book that most people consider dry, like cover to cover. So I can't really recommend her, you know, my biography, my 800 page biography on Augustus. Uh, she's not going to necessarily enjoy that as much as I did. So. <laughs> That's okay, though. That's okay. Uh, let's take a quick break. We'll talk more with Daryl coming up right after this. Hey, we're back. We're talking with Daryl Oliver, editorial assistant for Penguin Random House and former editor-in-chief of Prism Art and Literary Journal here at Orange Media Network. Uh, Daryl, what got you into Prism in the first place? Um, that is a, a tough question. I'm trying to remember exactly my first interaction with Prism. Um, and I think it was seeing the magazine. Um, there it was. I saw the magazine on my way out of class one day um, on the little stand they had there. And I flipped through it a few times and I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. And later on in that same month, I was in the Memorial Union um, and I saw some sort of ad on one of the TVs or something that said students can submit to PRISM. Um, and so I submitted a short story that I had written to the PRISM um, and, you know, was, was awaiting, was awaiting, was awaiting, and finally figured to just go over to the place where it was. It was at Snow Hall at the time, and I ran into the current editor-in-chief her name was Megan she happened to be there and you know she was very kind and said they hadn't made any decisions yet but if I wanted to be involved they were looking for volunteers to help um, read the submissions and talk about the submissions and I was like sure why not um, and that's that's how it first started and I think that was my sophomore year and do you remember what your uh, what your short story was about oh that short story was Yes, I do. I had written it for a creative writing class. It was about um, two twin brothers whose father has just passed away. Um, and one of them, one of the brothers had stayed at home. Um, they were, their family was from this random city I picked. I remember looking at the maps to pick a random city. And it was uh, Tracy, California and San Joaquin County in Northern California. Um, and our main character was the brother who had gone away to like work in Wall Street or business and was flying back for the funeral. And it was really about the tension between these two brothers. So you wrote the short story, you got involved with PRISM and, and you started volunteering to help review the submissions and see the other uh, pieces that were submitted. What was that experience like seeing the different types of art or the different writings that were submitted and, and actually having a hand in, in helping select them? What was that like? Um, well, one, it was incredibly humbling um, for me, I mean, to read the amazing work that other students on campus were writing that I had no idea was being written was, was a special moment uh, to the point where I remember for that first round when we did a blind vote at the time um, for like submissions, I didn't even vote for mine um, because the others were so good. Wow. And... Um, at that moment, I was only volunteering on the writing side. I wasn't volunteering on the art side. Uh, so I, I had no, you know, no exposure to the art, but the writing was just from poetry um, to short stories was amazing. We even 
got a few amazing like narrative nonfiction pieces. So I just think it was an incredible moment of larger community because Oregon State is a huge school, as everyone who goes there knows. I mean, it's it's impossible to meet everyone, but there was this moment of community with you know these people I'd never met, and then. I didn't know at the time, but I, I met some friends in that volunteer group. You know, many of those people went on to be my friends for a long time, who I still um, am connected with, who I think three of us got engaged or married in the last three years, and we all, you know, or last year, and we all know that, and we met in that room in Snell, and it had to be 2012 or 2013. And those relationships carried on after that. Yeah. One thing that I've found interesting is that, you know, Oregon State on the surface, when you look at it, you know, one might think, and, and maybe this is, you know, this is unfounded, but one might think that there's, you know, very engineering focused, STEM focused, you know, we're in, we're in Corvallis and, and the idea of a, a large arts community might not come to mind immediately. And, and, you know, that might be foolish on my part for saying that, but then you look at PRISM and you see these amazing pieces of art and writing that are submitted. And it, to me, it kind of showed that, you know, forgive the cliche, but it's, you can't judge a book by its cover. You know, there is a thriving arts community in Corvallis there. And, and a lot of them are, those students are submitting their work to PRISM. And I found that pretty surprising, to be honest, when I first encountered that, when I started working there. I don't know what, what your perception was of the, the arts community in Corvallis, but I, I personally just kind of found it surprising. I agree wholeheartedly. And I think like the outside perception of Oregon State, you nailed it right on the head. It's this engineering school. And if you're not there for engineering, it's the agricultural school. And a few people would say, oh, that's the one school with the tsunami lab, mm-hmm. right? Um, that's way over there. No one really knows about, you know, it's thriving. Um, art community that it has um, and even it's, it's school you know as a former English major there it's school of English and writing was spectacular I mean we have multiple writing professors who are published authors in their own right we have you know multiple English professors who have written so many dissertations and whatnot. so I think it's a it's a surprise and it was surprising but it was it was wonderful it's a wonderful surprise what was the transition like for you going from volunteering for prism to being the editor-in-chief of prism um let's see so for a while i was working in the dining halls and like i said the volunteering um started slow but really like picked up and I, I became really, really involved. And we had this core group of volunteers with our with the editor-in-chief at the time, Megan, and we all got really, really close to the point that we were, um, you know, have dinner at certain people's houses together just to hang out, like after Prism was out on shelves to celebrate. Um, and Megan did editor-in-chief for two years. I'm not sure how often it is that you have a a back-to-back editor-in-chief. And she was a year before me, um, and she came, she actually came to me one day uh, towards the end of her second year and said, you know, they're they're going to be looking for a new editor-in-chief, and I wondered if you want to do it. Uh, Because I had gotten really, really involved and really into it, and I said, of course. And, um... I applied and, you know, did some interviewing and 
and got the job. So I stopped working at the dining hall and, and started working at Prism. And it was like a no-brainer for me because um, I'd been doing everything I could with Prism on a volunteer basis. So why not do a little more and get paid for it? And did you feel like you slipped into the role pretty easily? Uh, you know, did it, did it fit really well when you were editor-in-chief and started doing that work? Or were there some things you needed to adjust to? There were definitely some adjustments, but overall I think it fit entire, extremely well. And I think a large part of that is, again, I give all my credit to Megan. She left this book of like things that she struggled with when she first became editor-in-chief that I just used as my guide so often and so early. Um, and you know, there were just extra requirements that you have now when you're editor-in-chief as opposed to volunteer. You you have to think about, um, you know, timeline on getting things sent off to the printer. You have to think about how many copies do we want to order? How many copies can we realistically order? Um, think more about where we're positioning our stands. Uh, this was at the time when we were starting to build websites and social media presence and trying to maybe get a radio show of our own or podcast of our own. So a lot of logistics to think through and then um, we were really trying to be you know close with the other um, things going on at Orange Media Network such as KBVR and the barometer so speaking with my colleagues there to make sure that we all knew what was going on in each other's publications and platforms and see if there was any way that there was that we could collaborate uh, and also just dealing you know, with more people. Now I was dealing with um, contributors regularly, dealing with the graphic designer regularly, and just making sure that everyone felt heard, respected, and like they were a part of the team, especially the volunteers who were so crucial to PRISM. What's important as a leader to help get that buy-in from your team and help your team feel like every, you know, the things they do are valuable? Uh, what did you do as a leader to have to, to, to cultivate that sense among the team? I think it's cliche, but the first thing is um, never, never ask someone to do something that you wouldn't do is, is my first thing. So I, I wasn't, you know, I wouldn't ask someone or ask them to finish this whole packet of submissions. And we got a lot of submissions at Prism, which is great, um, by a certain time and then show up and I hadn't finished it myself. Um, also, I didn't like to, you know, I, I'm not really a power play sort of person, so I wanted everyone's opinion to feel equal. And um, what I would do is when we had voted on the submissions and we had picked the submissions that were going to go into a magazine, um, rather than cutting them off after that, thank you very much, bye, and, and choosing how it is, I brought everyone in on the layout process. We would, we would get one of the conference rooms and I would take out a bunch of tape and tacks and we would lay out the whole magazine on, on a wall or on a board and all of us would be in there for three, four hours just doing it and moving it around. And I, you know, I, I didn't supersede anyone's ideas or thoughts. If someone had a good idea or a good thought, it, it went in the magazine just like that. Uh, so just to make everyone feel involved um, and let everyone know like we have a good, we have a place here. And then I made a small tweak uh, that I noticed wasn't in the magazine before, I listed all our volunteers in the magazine. Like everyone's name who helped bring this one together is going to go in this magazine. Yeah. I mean, and that's, and that's 
what a great thing to do because that magazine would not be possible without every single one of those volunteers and everyone who helped out. Uh, exactly. Daryl, what was the feeling like when you saw your first issue as editor-in-chief published and on the stands? Uh, it was really special. It was really, really special. I remember um, because I think that one was we used the, the art that had been used on the cover art actually ended up being art from someone else who worked at Orange Media Network, who's a photographer who submitted it. Um, and it's this beautiful, yeah, I, I remember it's this beautiful, like, clear water next to a mountain. You can see the pebbles underneath the water. And it was just this crisp feeling. And I love seeing it um, on stands around the campus. Um, and I'll never forget because my mom and my grandma wanted all these copies mailed back to them. And I said, I, I can't send you all of our copies. Like, you guys can get two each. I don't think you need any more than that. Um, so it, it was really special to the point where I still have that magazine up somewhere in my home. I just love the idea of your mom and your grandma just like going to campus and like pulling all the copies they can find off of the off of the stands so they've, so they've got them. <laughs> Uh, I, I remember that issue as well, and I, I remember the cover and just how beautiful it was and how, how much it just jumped off the stands. Um, I, I thought that was terrific. Uh, and then you had two more issues after that, you know, like it, it's kind of interesting in that you, you create this thing and you spend all of this time working on it and it's published. And then it's almost like you have to turn around and, and start working on the next one. It's almost like you don't have time to, to, to appreciate, you know, when, when it's there in the world. You know. You don't have time to breathe, which is interesting because I think the title of that edition was Breathe. Um, and you don't <laughs> right. have any time to breathe after it because, like you said, you turn around and um, it was. I remember for that second submission uh, or that second edition of the prism that I, I published, I was like, let's get this call for submissions out like now so we can get these submissions early so we're not all losing our mind trying to finish the submission packet. Um, because we, we got a lot, and we got a lot of positive reception um, from that first edition, and there were a lot of things we know we learned to streamline the process for the next one. And I think that was the time we really took a close look at where we had our stands for PRISM uh, to make sure we were getting it in the hands of students who really wanted to read it. If there's a listener right now who's interested in getting into PRISM, whether it's submitting work or even potentially becoming an editor, what advice would you give them about getting involved with PRISM? Go to the Orange Media Network building and you know I don't want to speak for you all but I'm sure once campuses open up and it's safe to do so you will continue to have this quasi open door policy and you go up there and ask to volunteer um, because as a volunteer you know you can be involved you get to see everything there is to know about PRISM and um, you get to see the back end and then also after that if you really do want to submit some work uh, you still have that opportunity to do so um, and also if you don't want to volunteer and you just want to submit whether it's photography whether it's poetry painting creative writing whatever your skill and talent and passion is just keep trying do a little bit you know, I want to say do a little every day, but you can't do that, but do a little every week. Um, every Saturday or Sunday, make sure you've done a little more than you did last week. 
Well, Daryl Oliver is a former PRISM editor-in-chief and now an editorial assistant for Penguin Random House. Daryl, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It was great catching up with you. Thank you for having me, Stephen. It was great talking to you as well. And uh, thank you, everyone who listened. And I hope you all have a wonderful day. Thank you, Daryl. Take care. And if you'd like to learn more about Orange Media Network, go to orangemedianetwork.com and subscribe to the OMN Alumni Podcast wherever fine podcasts are sold. I'm Stephen Sandberg. We'll see you next time.